It's an early fall evening, the weather perfectly mild, the breeze light. You go out for a stroll and you look up and can't help but marvel at the full moon. On this night, the moon seems bigger and brighter than you've ever seen it. It seems to have an orange tint to it as if it is, in fact, the largest jack-o'-lantern in all of creation. It is the harvest. And though many of us live in urban environments, we know it as a time of bringing in that year's abundant yield of crops. As if the moon itself is aiding in the harvesting process, it's lighting up the evening sky with a sort of second daylight. This is no ordinary moon. It's the harvest moon. 19th century poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Harvest Moon, speaks to the almost magical quality of this full moon. It is the harvest moon. On gilded veins and roofs of villages, on woodland crests in their aerial neighborhoods of nests, deserted on the curtain window panes of rooms where children sleep, on country lanes and harvest fields, its mystic splendor rests. Gone are the birds that were our summer guests. With the last sheaves return the laboring wanes, all things are symbols. The external shows of nature have their image in the mind, as flowers and fruits and falling of the leaves. The songbirds leave us at the summer's close. Only the empty nests are left behind, and pipings of the quail among the sheaves. Beautiful, isn't it? In the poem, the world has changed over from summer to autumn, seemingly transformed by the moon itself. But is there really something special about the harvest moon? Are all our beliefs about the harvest moon just a bit loony? Welcome to Fall Tales, a podcast exploring folklore, tall tales, and urban legends associated with autumn. In this episode, we'll look at the beliefs and stories connected with the harvest. And we'll see that some age-old traditions and ideas still influence how we observe the harvest season. So that first question looms the largest. What makes the harvest moon special? Well, the farmer's almanac folks tell us that the harvest moon does stand apart from other full moons. One reason is that unlike other full moons, the harvest moon is not associated with a specific month as others are. It's all about the Northern Hemisphere's autumnal equinox, which occurs each year on September 22nd or 23rd. The equinox is the time twice a year when the sun crosses the celestial equator, when day and night are of equal length. It's seen as the first official day of fall. Now, the full moon appearing closest to the equinox is called the harvest moon. Most years, the harvest moon happens in September, but in 2020, that harvest moon will occur on October 1st. Now, a harvest moon in September, with only in a September with only one full moon will replace that usual September full corn moon, and it can replace the October full hunter's moon. But this year, with the harvest moon arriving on October 1st, the hunter's moon will still occur on, of all days, Halloween. (laughs) Now, if a harvest moon appears a very fall-appropriate shade of orange, well, that's because any time the moon is located near the horizon, 
The scattering of the light by the atmosphere creates that yellowish or orangish glow. Now, there's a widely repeated tale about the harvest moon, and it's namely that it got its name because it provided ample light in the early evening for farm workers to gather in crops. That tradition has some merit. You see, the harvest moon rises right around sunset, and for several days afterward, moonrise occurs within a short time after sunset. The bright glow of light reflecting off the moon gave workers extra time to work in the fields. Now, we all know that agricultural operations aren't as dependent on the moon or the sun or any other celestial objects anymore. But there was a time when widespread beliefs existed that the phases of the moon governed not only work patterns, but the natural world itself, influencing rainfall and drought. The Romans held that mythical belief. And that might sound funny and quaint until you consider that 19th century Americans moving west of the 100th meridian were sold on a mistaken belief that rain, quote, follows the plow. That is, they believed that the tilling of the earth freed up moisture in the the soil, which evaporated and made rain. Now, it turns out sham meteorologists were paid by the railroad companies to sell folks on heading west into the most arid parts of the North American continent. But I digress. A podcast called The Constant can fill you in on the lunacy of the rain follows the plow concept. And speaking of lunacy, the idea that a full moon could cause or exacerbate bouts of mental illness or fits of disease or create any change in the human body whatsoever has been widely studied and never shown to have a measurable effect. That might come as a surprise to some people, especially werewolves, but the moon may not actually play a strong role on our bodies but it does play an important role in the harvest. And I think even a young child knows what the harvest is. It's a time of pumpkins and hay bales and a cornucopia overflowing with that year's yield of delicious fruits and veggies. But what about that word itself? What is harvest? So what is harvest? Well, harvest is an old Germanic word for the season that today we call autumn or fall. Specifically, it meant to gather or pluck and was the name for the period of the year from August to November. So maybe go easy on craft stores and supermarkets that put out their fall decor before Labor Day. Anyway, so Old English's version of the word was herfest, spelled H-A-S-H-R-F-E-S-T. Ash is an archaic letter that looks like an A and an E got smashed together. It's usually pronounced like the A in cap or tap. Now the word harvest was mainly used for the season in Old English. But in the Middle English period, harvest started to gain a sense of the organized act of gathering crops in the mid-1200s. And the yield gained from gathering the crops became a sense of the word harvest about 100 years later in the 1300s. Now, Dutch and German still use versions of the word harvest as their name for the fall season. But in English, the word autumn, which came from Old French via Latin, began to displace that older term for the season in the 1300s and had replaced it completely by the early 1500s. 
Here in America, we use autumn some of the time, but we tend to have a strong preference for the word fall. Fall was originally a term used in England in the 1500s. Fall of the leaf. And by the mid-1600s, it was shortened to just fall. Somewhere along the way, it fell out of use in Britain. But fall has remained a popular term on this side of the Atlantic. Now, ancient cultures the world over celebrated the gathering of the crops. The Romans had a feast for the goddess Ceres, who governed over the growth of food-producing plants. The Celts celebrated the end of summer on October 31st and November 1st with a feast called Samhain. And yes, uh, I will surely cover Halloween on a future episode. And the English kicked off the harvest season August 1st with Lammas Day, the loaf mass. Now, a loaf of bread was made with wheat, and many cultures celebrated harvesting their grain crop, whether wheat or rice or sweet corn, with rituals in which that crop was personified as a corn mother or rice mother spirit. A Russian tradition included a boy wrapped in a sheaf of wheat by a corn mother who then simulated birthing him. Parts of northern England had a tradition of dressing a wheat sheaf in a white frock and ribbons and mounting it on a pole as the Kern baby. German folklore took field spirits to a whole other level. They believed in Feldgeister, or field spirits. Now, Feldgeister could take the form of humans or various animals. Some controlled storms and rain, and others lived among the crops. A portion of the crops were sacrificed to the Feldgeister in hopes that the farmers would continue receiving the cooperation of the Feldgeister in allowing a good harvest. And so that last stock of grain, which was implicitly a Feldgeist, was cut ceremonially or made into a corn doll. In all of these traditions, the crops themselves were personified in some way and semi-worshipped. But over the centuries, people ceased to worship the crops as a way to ensure another bountiful harvest. Instead, they began to focus on trying to protect those crops from the birds and other animals that would eat and potentially destroy that year's crop. And in the days before pesticides or modern deterrents such as sound-emitting devices, farmers had to rely on scarecrows to vouchsafe the harvest. The earliest reference to a scarecrow is from the mid-1500s, and it refers to people employed to scare crows. By the late 1500s, the sense had been extended to an effigy made of straw and cloth, bearing resemblance to a man. Now, all over the internet, you will find unsourced articles claiming that the original scarecrows were children who worked in the fields shooing crows and other birds. The story goes that the Black Plague of 1348 and 49 killed off so much of the population that there were no longer enough kids to work as scarecrows. So they had to automate the process using dummies. And that sounds reasonable, right? Except there's a lot of clues that this tale is mostly apocryphal. First, more than a third of Europe's population was killed by the plague. But one consequence of this was that it gave more agricultural workers access to owning their own land. It was one of the events that gave rise to a robust and upwardly mobile middle class. And these new landowners seemingly could have paid for cheap labor to scare crows. Also, the plague affected different towns to different extents. Some farming regions may have still had plenty of kids to help with various types of farm work. After all, if there hadn't been enough kids for the fields, well, 
the population would have died off. Add to that the fact that English had a much earlier word for a straw-filled scarecrow, called a shul. So England had shul, a straw-stuffed field guardian, long before the plague. And many ancient cultures, including Egypt and Greece, had scarecrows of some sort. Some were literal deterrents to the birds and other beasts and were basically effigies of agricultural gods meant to serve as an entreaty for the gods to provide a bountiful harvest. For example, the Mayans in the Yucatan had a sort of towering scarecrow figure that was placed in the cornfield and dressed in corn husks and coated with beeswax. A ceremony was conducted and each of the elements on this figure was a gift to one of the four winds to protect the corn. Now, earlier people must have been somewhat creeped out by the ugly, almost monstrous-looking scarecrows. Kind of like some people are today. And one of the obsolete terms used for a scarecrow in Middle and Early Modern English was a bug. That term bug could also be used to mean a goblin, and it survives in the modern term bugbear, which is something that causes obsessive fear, irritation, or loathing. You can probably think of a few examples of stories, comics, and films in which scarecrows were definitely something that caused an obsessive amount of terror or loathing. In the 1990s, the Batman cartoon and the movie Batman Begins in 2005 portray the scarecrow as one of the villains Batman must stop from harming the people of Gotham City. In these portrayals, Scarecrow is a demented psychiatrist who works at Arkham Asylum and doubles as a villain dressed in a burlap scarecrow mask who uses a sort of nerve gas to have a terrifying effect on his victims. He's a creepy character who is definitely more scary to humans than to birds. But no scarecrow is quite as spooky as Harold in the third volume of Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, published in 1991. The story series was made into a film in 2019. And the Scarecrow Herald is the main baddie featured on the movie poster. In the story titled Herald, two cowherds decided to make a scarecrow who kind of resembles a farmer named Harold whom they disliked. They would talk to it and sometimes abuse it both with punches and with words. They also smeared food all over his face. One night they noticed Harold, who was made of straw-filled sacks, seemed to be getting larger, but it was probably nothing. But the next day, Harold was up and walking about and leering at the two abusive field hands. The two guys were creeped out and decided to take their cows and get out of Dodge. But one of the men went back to pick up the forgotten milking stools. This is how the story ends. They drew straws to see which one would go back. It was Thomas. I'll catch up with you, he said, and Alfred walked toward the valley. When Alfred came to a rise in the path, he looked back for Thomas. He did not see him anywhere, but he did see Harold. The doll was on the roof of the hut again. As Alfred watched, Harold kneeled and stretched out a bloody skin to dry in the sun story is pretty in your face with this killer scarecrow but it underscores why these straw and cloth effigy effigies tend to weird us out they seem like a twisted version of something familiar 
They aren't real, though we endow them with human-like clothes and faces. So if we treat one poorly, it seems appropriate that the Scarecrow would want payback. Now, not all Scarecrows are out for blood. Think of the Wizard of Oz and the friendly, though brainless, friend to Dorothy. I think the Scarecrow in the context of Oz is as something familiar to the girl. The kinds of things one who lived on a farm would be comfortable around. And to be honest, you're more, likely, you're more likely to see a scarecrow these days as a fall decoration on a front porch or in a store display rather than guarding a field. The decorative bugs tend to be smiling and sweet and often feature a companion crow on one straw-stuffed shoulder. But I think I prefer the scarecrows found in pop art or in a Tim Burton movie. You know, the sinister ones with a pumpkin for a noggin. So... Burton's 1999 film, Sleepy Hollow, opens with a man fleeing a mysterious pursuer through a cornfield until his path is blocked by a scarecrow with a pumpkin head on which is carved a menacing-looking pair of eyes and a mouth. After the attacker is done tracking down the victim and exacting his punishment, we see a splatter of blood on the creepy scarecrow face. The scarecrow isn't the attacker but it would be easy to imagine such a scarecrow as a spirit embodying that field and perhaps enacting its judgment on the people who feed off the field's bounty. Now, it's obvious that a pumpkin head would rot after a few days, so it doesn't make a lot of practical sense to have a pumpkin-headed scarecrow. But the pumpkin-headed portrayal does do something interesting. See, it merges the humanness of the scarecrow with the fruits of the harvest. That is, the scarecrow becomes part man, part feldgeist. Both sides of the transaction that a harvest entails. Now, a good harvest might depend on being able to work by the light of the harvest moon. And it might require showing proper respect to the spirits of the field. Scarecrows may or may not be all that great at stopping crows. They probably aren't. But they do an effective job of personifying that relationship between the field workers in the natural world. Not only do we hope to feast on this year's harvest, we know that the harvest represents the end of the growing season and the beginning of the worry about whether the future will bring another fruitful bounty. All the technology in the world will never allow humans to totally conquer nature. Winds and rain and the pesky crows will all have their say on the coming year's yield of crops. So, smile at any scarecrow you pass. And maybe set aside an extra ear of corn for those Feldgeister. Yeah, I don't believe in them either. But stopping to show a little respect to nature couldn't hurt. I'm Mark Wright. You've been listening to Fall Tales. <laughs>